Hey folks, uh, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. My name is Jeff Benjamin, co-host along with Bruce Kelly, and uh, we've got a great guest for you kicking it off this week, Andrew Comero, founder of Planning Across the Spectrum, and that name is perfect for his firm, and you're going to learn all about that as we as we get deep in the weeds with Andrew, hearing all about his unique niche practice, focusing on autism, clients with autism, and uh, Andrew is also on the autism spectrum. And as you will learn throughout this podcast that Bruce and I are kind of kind of new to the autism education. Yeah, we don't know anything about it, Jeff, basically. Right. Nothing. So, so we're both very happy that Andrew is here to to help us, you know, get, gain some understanding of this. We're thing. we're expecting to get an education here. And as as we told uh, Andrew beforehand, if we say things that are incorrect, please correct us because we want to know. So Andrew Give us a little bit of your background. I mean, you know, kind of you starting the firm and, you know, where that came from and, and how this firm came about and, and obviously your niche. So it really started with I I had been doing this, this financial planning for a while and I was not diagnosed with autism until later in life. And I always thought I wanted until to your late twenties or something, Andrew. Right? Correct. Yeah. So, were you 20s. a financial planner already before? That? I was. Or, Absolutely. So you were. You went to college and became a financial planner. How did that happen? Uh, I've only met like one person ever who actually went to college to be a financial planner. Maybe right. there's a couple more, but no, actually, um, I I had my own business fixing computers. I was joking to my uncle that your my uncle was making a joke that he was at Prudential that they would hire anyone who would fog a mirror. And <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm looking for something different. I can fog you know? a mirror. I can fog a mirror. <laughs> I think I said during my interview, I'm Jewish. So I had a leg up and, uh, I, you know, but they, they hired me. So. And this was back when exactly? 2010. Okay. And so you started working with Prudential selling insurance. Uh, of course. I mean, well, you know, and all trying to, you know, do other things as well, but yes. So how did so, you get into the financial planning world from, from that? Well, so, you know, there, there was the path and there was in there even so a little bit more of a lot of the insurance firms, right. To focus on the comprehensive planning, they realized right. that there's business in the investment wealth management too. And I really liked the the comprehensive planning. I couldn't understand why people didn't like working with engineers and the really analytical people. Like, huh. no, I really like these people. And so I didn't quite have like a niche in mind, but I, I wanted to work with people who I thought were a bit like me, right, as a niche. And so I thought, oh, I really like my engineering clients. I really like my actuary lawyer clients. And when you think about you know, not knowing I had autism, that's probably about as close, I think, as I could have got guessing, right? You know, very just analytical, detail-oriented, introverted, which is a bit of a stereotype, but, you know, not completely or completely unwarranted. So then shortly after I was diagnosed, I saw the that, oh, I, I think I finally found who I want to specialize and work with and a in a great way to target them. I really hadn't figured out a great way to say, I want to work with really analytical people. And then I found it. How is that marketing process? I mean, and, and what is your client base largely people with autism? So two, two separate questions. So let me answer the second one first. And that is, is my client base largely people with autism? And it's a large part of the community I'm involved with and who I and who we work with. But we break that down into three segments. One is the more common special needs planning, and that is parents of individuals with those with special needs, autism and other disabilities. The two things that really set us apart are that we really like to be inclusive of the individuals as well in their planning. Even if we're working with the parents, you know, we really like to include the individual in the decision-making as much as possible. Although I do like to focus on autism, we have other advisors at the firm and we cover what would be considered IDD, intellectual developmental disabilities. Mm -hmm. So, which is 
mostly when we hear special needs. I mean, there are obviously physical disabilities and, and other things. And then the last one is working with employers that actually want to hire individuals with disabilities and helping them be able to, to do that. Right. So those are the two parts that are most exciting to me and they're most unique. So I guess over answer that one. And it depends, but the vast majority of the people who come to us and work with us are a lot of times are. And I think that leads into the marketing. I don't really, it, the marketing is a mix of advocacy and just doing the right thing. And I hate how cliche it sounds to say that, right? Just, you know, like do the right thing and business will follow. But I think something important with the special needs planning market, and if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking of getting into the special needs planning market, I can tell you that it is the most rewarding work. It is going to be the hardest niche you can pick and the least profitable. If you still want to do it after those two things, then please come join us, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Right. You're working with, there's usually parents who only have one income, right? Because they had to stay home to take care of the person with the disability. Right, right. right. There's all these moving parts, things that aren't even really financial planning. Or if they are, it's how do you classify them? Like what, what are we really talking about? So if, if you're looking to get into it because you really love this work, I mean, that's a great thing, but it's really a lot of, there's been so many financial planners who started at Prudential and decided to market to a local nonprofit and try and sell insurance. And not that that's not part of the solution a lot of the time, but it's, you know, these families are overloaded with information, so they don't even know what questions to ask. So a lot of my job is trying to figure out, help them figure out where they want to go, what they want to do, and how to get there. And a lot of times it's just pointing them in the right direction of benefits and resources. A lot of times it's not something I can do to help directly. You have obviously other advisors and people working at your firm. Do they have special uh, qualifications to work with people with special needs? Well, so the answer is yes, but that's, that's a tough one. That's a good, you know, I don't think I've been asked that question before and I, I've done a lot of podcasts. So seriously, <laughs> thank you. The answer is yes, but then it, what is a qualification? Right. So for example, if half our firm, half our staff is on the autism spectrum, well, does that automatically qualify somebody? I mean, I don't think it hurts. You know, we have an advisor with, again, a CHSNC, the Chartered Special Needs Consultant, which just shows a commitment to wanting to work with individuals. I will state firmly, I don't think it prepares anyone for actually working with individuals with special needs. There's nothing in there that I find really would help uh, an advisor I bring on really learn the work that we do, which is unfortunate, but it's better than nothing. It's the closest we have. I, I guess I'd say it's really more about the non-designation, non-licensed experience. We brought on a, a CFP who was embarrassed to tell her background. She, she didn't feel at first that she had the right qualifications to hype Why up at being at a wealth. Well, she went to school to be a speech pathologist, right? And oh, you know, she didn't have it, a background in finance or something. You mean? Yeah, yeah. And it was, and she has a CFP, right? And she specifically went into this, being outraged at seeing people with disabilities being left out of the financial conversations. And I said, "Your qualifications way more important than you think it is." The families that are coming to us. And even currently in, in wealth management and investment, there's a lot of either model portfolios or, you know, again, true financial planning is how much of investment selection, I, no matter what study or research you look at. I said, I, I think you're, if I, if I got to pick a degree for you, I'd pick speech pathology over business any day of the week for the clientele we're working with. I think that answered the question. Yeah, it's a. Do you? I'm assuming you all of your clients don't have, and I'm just assuming this, so I don't know that all of your clients don't have some connection to autism. And if that is the case, have you ever had a client that 
doesn't want to work with you because you're on the autism spectrum? I'll try not to say this again for the rest of the podcast. I do so many podcasts and you guys are asking like the best questions I've ever been asked. So <laughs> no, I'm not just saying that. Like, thank you. All right. Like seriously. Uh, we don't have any prizes for you, Andrew, by the yeah. way, for we're, buttering we're, us up. There's no prizes. No, I you... don't know. I'm being serious. I'm just being genuine. I, hey, you heard, you heard what I say to Fidelity. If I'm yeah. mad at them, I, I don't butter anyone up. Okay. <laughs> so the answer is absolutely. And, and it, it, it goes kind of, I, I want to take it apart into two different parts, right? Because it was kind of two different questions. So, you know, the first is, do I, we have clients who aren't associated with the community? And the answer is yes. Although if a client comes in and they have no tie to the community and they were referred by like a good longstanding client, our policy on how much we charge, and I don't think I can put this on an ADV, but it's true. It, it's, it, it depends how much we like you. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, you can't put we that might on ask the good questions, but Andrew, that's one of the most honest answers I've ever heard from a financial advisor yeah. before. So that's well, fantastic. And if you, and if you know anyone with autism, like again, like honesty, transparency, probably to a fault is a right. large part of it. There you but go. then if you look at studies about what people like most about their financial advisors, it's, oh, the top thing is that they're honest. Well, in theory, that's really good, but there's obviously a lot of other factors that go into that. So, you know, I would say almost all of our new clients have some tie to the community. We didn't fire all our clients who weren't connected at all. If I liked working with them, et cetera, then, you know, I still did. I still enjoy working with them quite a bit for all the reasons I did. But when it comes to has anyone chosen not to work with me, it's hard to always know. I will be one of those people that will ask feedback why somebody chose not to work with me. I actually asked my wife this after our first date, why she didn't want to go on a second date with me. And I asked for constructive feedback. (laughs) So I don't remember what it was. You're a brave man. Yeah. See, you know, (laughs) but, you know, it's. I, I think it's hard. I actually think it's those who are not who are involved in the autism community or who know somebody who know a little bit about autism or think they know are actually where I might experience the bias. But the bias goes both ways. I've had people I've actually got internally frustrated when somebody basically said that they were interested in working with me because I was on the autism spectrum. And that actually bothered me because it is a reason I am good at what I do, but I almost took that as pity slash charity. Mm-hmm. Like, and maybe I took it the wrong way. Uh, either way, they didn't end up working with me and I didn't express that to them. So, I mean, who knows? But I would say it's important for me to be very good at what I do. And because I have autism, I have strengths and weaknesses. And it's a large part of the reason I am so good at what I do. But it's not the sole reason somebody should work with me. And so with that being said, if the only autism you're familiar with is a non-speaking younger child who flaps their hands and runs around. By the way, there's nothing wrong with any of that. You may say, I, I don't know if I want my financial advisor like that. But ever there's the saying, if you met one person with autism, you met one person. Uh-huh. Uh, Bill, Bill Gross, right, is being famous for, well, being Bill Gross, but also being on the autism spectrum. So it, it really depends. I would say it's really more, uh, people don't usually say it to my face, which I guess is respectable. But I have, I can guarantee you, I have lost out on business opportunities, business deals, larger clients and larger customers because of that inherent almost bias in, in a negative way. More instead of just asking me, that's why I think I said when the podcast started, you guys are like, I don't know anything about autism. I'm like, that's perfect. That's great. <laughs> right. You know, it's almost like if I get, if there's an advisor working, I'd rather have one who, hasn't worked. <laughs> you have no bad habits. 
right? Well, well, Andrew, if you listen to our podcast on a regular basis, you'll learn that Bruce and I go into a lot of these interviews without knowing anything about our subject. And (laughs) 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 And what are some of the unique, and I know you touched on this a little bit at the beginning, talking about the, you know, families that have children on the spectrum. What are some of the unique things that you have to focus on as a financial planner working with these clients? So I would say the most unique thing is all the non-financial things I need to know. And that is when somebody says special needs, okay, we want to protect government benefits. I go, what benefits? In my state, there's 32 different benefit programs with 32 different sets of eligibility criteria. What? And you're in Connecticut, Andrew, right? I am in Connecticut, yes. And we do work in every state and have clients in other countries. I just... I haven't memorized that statistic for all 50 yet. (laughs) But the 32 pertains to Connecticut. 32 pertains to Connecticut, but I would say in the vast majority of states, they're still, it's probably pretty close. You know, let's call it dozens. I would feel confident saying probably every state, there's dozens of different benefit programs with different sets of eligibility criteria. But it's really just knowing what happens when someone is turning 18, understanding guardianship, uh, support decision-making, understanding SSI, SSDI, Medicare, Medicaid, all of the non-investment things that go along with it, which is really important if you're trying to financially plan for not just one lifetime, but two. And if you are trying to do that, it's really important to understand what benefits and resources might be available. Well, that's a real expertise. I, I mean, I would hope so. I mean, otherwise, I'm, you know, I've been all wrong. How, how big is your staff and how have you added staff over time to address different issues? So I, I think we're at like nine to 10 people. Some are part time, but they've been part time for a while. I've added staff out of just finding good people. And I, I do what every management book says you shouldn't do, right? <laughs> and, and that is, I want to find somebody who loves doing what they're doing. And I want to offer them employment so they can get paid to do as much of that as possible. Of course, there are always parts of everyone's job and day where there's things that they don't want to do. but. If I hire somebody, if I, any of that, I will want to have them be as happy as possible doing the things that they want to do and seeing how that can kind of complement the business. That's, in my opinion, kind of an interesting way to hire people. Some people I've just hired because I've just really liked them and I wasn't sure exactly what they were going to do but I was sure that they were going to do something and known them a little bit professionally. Other times it's, if we're talking about financial advisors in this space, it's a small community of true financial planners and we connect. And some of them I will, when I was looking for, you know, a new uh, director of financial planning, like another planner, I said, I need someone. I'm desperate. I don't want to put up a job ad or can I hire you in like a text message or email? And then she started. So, you know, other times having to go through the official job ad, I I like finding people before I need them because growing fast and having good people who you can trust and who can work hard and enjoy what they're doing and not just rush out the door and you can hear the wind go by as it hits five o'clock. Want people who are as passionate as I am or or somewhere close. You mentioned uh, growing fast. How'd your business do during the, over the past year or so since everything became virtual? And I know you already said you have clients all over the country. It was the best thing that ever happened. Although I never could have predicted why or how at the time. I never thought when I started Prudential 10, 11 years ago that I'd be in a situation where how do I handle all the people contacting me who want my help, which is a great problem to have, but I, you also need the capacity to be able to still grow, maintain, and 
I think one of the harder things about the niche that I work in is if I don't help a lot of the people who contact us, I don't know if there's anyone else who can or will. And so we do a lot of just 30 minute free consultations and not expecting any business or money after that, because a lot of times maybe they don't have it, but we we strongly feel that we should never just say we can't help you. We're at capacity. We at least want to be able to point somebody in the right direction so they, they can get help with whatever their questions are. But a lot of my business was going to a lot of presentations and fairs and events. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it was my favorite thing, but kept me busy. And I think like a lot of people, pandemic happened, was concerned. And then I took the opportunity to really work more with the people I really wanted to work with, do a lot more of the networking, put a lot more control on my social media marketing and do it in a way that I, I actually think has worked out quite well. I don't know many other advisors who really generate a lot of business from social media without talking about what they do which is kind of an interesting thing. I, I just share my opinions on the internet and you know people seem to like them. I know plenty of people don't for the record because it's the internet, but you know, it's-, it's yeah. Well, it uh, seems like you're stepping into a real vacuum here. I mean, is, is what you're saying. There's, there's not a lot out there for people looking for financial planning answers to all these questions from these families. And, and, well, and well, there, no, there's, there's, there's a vacuum people. that you're kind of filling, it seems. Yeah, no. I mean, when you think about a, a niche, where I'm talking about families that are literally desperate for information. They're desperate for resources. They're desperate to help. I mean, what better marketing for a financial advisor than to say, I have the resources and the answers. Here, let me share them with you. Yeah. That's been a large part of how we've grown. Along those lines, Andrew, do you, I mean, in niche practices are the, to me, the hottest thing right now and where a lot of the consultants are saying financial planners should be directing their energies. Do you think somebody who's not on the autism spectrum or not intimately familiar with autism could specialize in this area? So the answer is yes, but are they going to answer the first two questions the way I said? which is, are you okay with working a lot harder in a more challenging area and making a lot less money than your other options? Mm -hmm. I would say, so for example, uh, Elizabeth Yoder, who's joined us, I meant she's the one who I sent the message to, please come work for me. Mm -hmm. She has a passion for working with individuals with disabilities, but she doesn't have a, a child herself. She's not herself. and. I, I do think it is an uphill battle, not there's a, I would almost call it an unwarranted distrust when it comes to somebody who's not within that community. I actually really appreciate somebody who is, I mean, I, I, I didn't pick to have autism. A special needs parent for the most part didn't pick to become one. And, you know, in my mind, Liz chose to work with people with disabilities. So I, I, I almost value that more. But it is a much harder uphill battle and people will really question your sincerity, your story, the reason to why. But I think in a lot of ways, if you're able to do all of that and work uphill, it can be very valuable because you don't have the biases. Lots of parents are doing this because they usually have a you know, son or daughter with a lot of high support needs who needs a lot of help. and. They see the value in helping other parents. And that's great. But there's, again, a difference between someone like me and someone like them. And well, what if they need help, but they don't need government benefits, right? Or what if, again, sometimes more looking at the individual, not leaving them out of the conversations. And as a parent, it's a bit different. You're getting a, a parent's perspective. So... I think we need more of that. I think the niche community, when you think about having a niche, and I agree, it, it is the way of the future if it's not here already, working with people who are like you or you share commonality with, 
But that doesn't just happen to mean an illness. Some passionate advocate who, you know, lived with individuals with disabilities and worked in a group home and are a speech pathologist. You can do those things in care without having a disability yourself. Good stuff. Bruce, you have anything else for, for Andrew? No, I, th- I think that's, that's enough for right now. We might have Andrew back on some other time down the road and, and talk some more about what's going on in this community, I think, though. Yeah, really good stuff, Andrew. Really appreciate yeah, thanks you coming, for coming on, on, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, folks, I got a little pitch for you here. If you're an advisor who has a podcast or is even thinking about putting together a podcast, we have a little special something for you. We are doing, along with FICOM Partners Investment News, is putting together the first annual Advisor Podcast Awards with live judging on May 25th, and the submission deadline is May 18th. Like I said, we're accepting submissions from existing podcasts and also people that are in the process of putting together a podcast. So we're going to kind of judge your idea. I'm one of the judges. We've got a great panel and uh, we're putting it all together and we'd love to get your submission. So we'll put the link in the show notes. Thanks. Okay, good stuff there from Andrew. We're now uh, shifting over to Kevin Keller, Chief Executive Officer at the CFP Board. Kevin's going to talk to us about all things that he sees from his perch there in Washington, D.C., I know there's a couple of issues kind of uh, under his saddle. One is the the concept of accreditation and why not all financial credentials are created equal. Maybe he's a little biased there. We'll we'll we'll, we'll dig into that. But uh, hey, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. Jeff, thank you so much. It's good to be with you and Bruce. Hey, Kevin. Hey, uh, Kevin. Maybe maybe kick it off a little bit with your kind of your background in the space. What is the CFP board and why do we need a chief executive officer there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I think most people know, but CFP board is the standard setting and certifying body for personal financial planning. So the certification's been around since 1973 and, you know, started slow but we're approaching 90,000 CFP professionals in the United States. And even more than that outside the United States in 26 other territories around the world. And it's widely regarded, Kevin, as kind of the gold standard or one of the gold standards, I think people would say in, in the business. I don't know if you want to toot your own horn, but that's, that's one of the things that people are very proud to put on their business card. I think well, as well, they should be proud. The CFP certification, that is. Yeah, as well, they should be proud. But, you know, and and I don't disagree with the gold standard, but I, I have a, a view of CFP certification going forward. You know, nobody thinks of accounting and says, you know, I want to get a CPA because it's the gold standard of accounting. <laughs> right. They they say I. It, it, the CPA, the certified well, qualifies you to do the books, though, when it you're does, an accountant, but it, right? But I would suggest that CPA is the standard. And, and I have a view and a vision for CFP certification for those who want to deliver financial advice and particularly financial planning, that CFP becomes the standard. I think we're on our way there. We still have a little ways to go, but we're working hard to make uh, CFP the must-have designation for both providers, but also consumers or customers of financial advice. Kevin, what's your background there? How long have you been there? You know, I, uh, on May 1st, I started my 15th year. So I've, I've been here 14 years. When I came, some people will remember, CFP board was in Denver. Mm-hmm. That's the right. Board- the board of directors had made the decision to move before I was hired. That decision was made. I was actually the seventh person in less than seven years to sit in the CEO's chair between full-time and interim CEOs. And one of the interims, I think, maybe even lasted longer than one of the full-time CEOs. Wow. 
So uh, is it another 15 years for you or what? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, look, I serve at the pleasure of the board of directors. I'm excited. You know, when, when I came here, we had 54,000 CFP professionals. Mm-hmm. Today, we have 89,800 and some professionals. We continue to grow. You know, as you one of there's been a trend of late that I think is is interesting, fascinating, perhaps even at least as we look at the data. And when I first came here, the decade that most people earned CFP certification was the mid to late 30s to the early 40s. And mm-hmm. if you think about it, you know, people are in the business or they're career changers, you know, that layered on top of we still have more CFP professionals over 70 than under 30 means that, you know, the demographics, the trend there isn't necessarily your friend. And yet last year, over 5,000 new CFP professionals, the median age, the age at which half were older and half were younger was 32. And the most frequently occurring age was 25. We had almost 350 new CFP professionals. So it's a, there's a long tail to the right. The oldest was 72. So we're seeing more and more people get degrees in financial planning, and we're seeing more and more people get certified in their mid to late 20s. Okay. With, the, with the pandemic and people staying at home, working from home, did that contribute to an increase in interest in the program or, or what? You know, with people had more time in their hands, obviously they're not traveling. They weren't traveling last year for the past 12 or 14 months as much as they would in a typical year, that kind of thing. You know, uh, first of all, we were very fortunate to grow almost 3% last year. So I'm grateful for that. But that was down from almost 4% the previous year. If you think about it, you know, if you look at that age demographic, uh, that's an age where a lot of people have children at home homeschooling. Can you imagine studying for the CFP exam, you know, at the same time you're trying to... Homeschooling. So, (laughs) in fact, (laughs) our numbers in March, we had the largest March registration we've ever had. Uh, We're getting ready for the July exam. In fact, uh, this week, the volunteers are putting those exams together for July. And I think we're looking at near record July. So, uh, I think there might have been some pent up demand. Hey, Kevin, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the designation alphabet soup out there. I'm sure you're aware of this. Uh, FINRA tracks 212 designations in the wealth management space, which is up from 184 just three years ago. Here in investment news and probably a lot of trade publications, we're often asked to, uh, when we identify people, when we interview them, they asked us to put their designations behind their name. That's not our style, but you can imagine how cumbersome it might be to do that. How does the CFP designation, I mean, as the kind of the the gold standard, as Bruce put it, how do you folks feel about all these designations out there? Because a lot of them are, you know, more specialized designations. But I just like to know your general thought. And it seems like something like the CFP designation could get lost in all that. Well, I, I think you're I think you're right. So first of all, I'll declare I have a conflict <laughs> to talk about the topic. But you're right. There are 212 designations on the FINRA site. 131 of them start with the letter C. In fact, 12 of them are certified financial something, right? So they're certified Mm -hmm. financial planner 11. Look, here's here's the issue. And I, I think I would take it up maybe a level. And that is this proliferation is nothing but confusing to the public. Yeah. It's, you know, the public can't tell the difference between all of these letters. And it, it and in sometimes you see advisors who have so many letters, it's almost like they're feeling inadequate that they have to put so many letters after their name. And so one of the things that I feel honored to lead the CFP board because CFP certification is so well known. And yet we still 
are spending $12 million a year. We spent over $100 million promoting CFP certification over the last decade because we feel a sense of obligation to the public to help increase the awareness of CFP certification to the public more broadly. Mm -hmm. But what, I mean, do these, what, you said you have a conflict. Can you tell us about that? What do you have yeah, a couple have of a other designations? Yeah, because I think that the conflict that I have is that I lead CFP board uh -huh. and these other designations are confusing to the public. Right. You, know, you mentioned there were 212 designations. And I'm guessing that if we went to the websites of each of those designations, they would all have some high-minded, you know, some really impressive sounding code mm -hmm. of conduct. We endeavor to do the best job possible or something like that. And yet, most of those ethical statements that these 212 designations, all but a handful, have, their code of ethics, such that it may be, is, is worth, as paraphrasing Harry Truman, nothing more than a warm bucket of spit because there are no consequences. There, you know, if somebody doesn't live up to those high standards, but in most cases, there's no, you know, once you earn it, you continue to keep it. And I think it, it's a disservice to the public. Well, what I see when I see all those designations and, and people like you and I, and the three of us talking about it, is that our conversation becomes kind of like inside baseball because the most of the public is just now coming around to the concept of what a fiduciary is. When they see designations behind a financial advisor's name, they don't know that one's been around for 200 years and one's been around for 15 minutes or that one requires a full exhaustive exam process and one requires, you know, a, a, a check for $21. So, I mean, I just, I feel like that the industry is doing a disservice to itself by laying these things out there. And you know, I don't know what can be done about it. Can the industry itself do something about the designations? Because the, a lot of these designations are, they're specialized. They say, I'm a, I focus on alternative investments or retirement planning or senior, or senior care citizen. is a big one. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what's the, what's the end? What's the answer? Well, here? I, I still think it's a, a matter of public education. Now, it was interesting you mentioned the, the FINRA site. For the first time in preparation for our conversation today, I went to the FINRA site, and for the first time, there's a disclaimer in big red letters at the top of the site that says, FINRA does not approve or endorse any of these. And we've had cases in the past. There's this one outfit, and I don't mind calling them out, this designation depot where you mm -hmm. can, you can for $20 a month you can get up to 30 designations to put after your name at one point i don't know if they're still doing it they were actually touting the fact that these designations were listed on the finra site mm -hmm. you know they say no testing necessary no coursework no continuing education as though they're proud of that <laughs> oh that's so cynical yeah it, Absolutely. And it's a disservice to the public. And dissent is disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, but it, it are people. That's just the a designation warehouse. Yeah, it, it really is. Look, I don't know that the industry, I don't know that financial services, obviously somebody's, you know, look, some of these can be very profitable with little cost to maintain them. Here at mm -hmm. CFC Board, we maintain accreditation of our certification. On the FINRA site of those 212 designations, there are only nine that are accredited. Now, mm -hmm. if you were sending your son or daughter to school, to a university, would you want them to go to a non-accredited university? And yet we have that <laughs> equivalent of all of these designations. Many, and, and it's important because just like a university, undergoes a reaccreditation process. We at CFP Board and the other folks, I would, the other folks who are accredited undergo a similar every five-year reaccreditation. And it's actually, it's like a certification for certifying bodies. And they come in and, and it's, a, it's an examination where they're looking at what's the firewall between, you know, a lot of these certifications 
our judge, jury, and and the whole thing. I mean, you they give you the training, the education, they award it. And CFP certification has this firewall. We have 200 colleges and universities offering CFP certification. And there's there are important and expensive components of maintaining our certification. We conduct a job analysis. We call it a, a practice analysis so that we make sure that what we're testing on is what's actually the practice of financial planning. The topics, the principal knowledge topics are those topics that are actually important and a part of the day-to-day practice of financial planning. Kevin, who do you think needs to step up and provide some semblance of oversight over this proliferation, you know, of these flimsy designations? Is it Congress? Is it the SEC? I mean, you know, that your comrades in the industry don't want to have, you know, we're already in a democratic administration. They don't want to have more regulation, right? So how do you, if, it, if this is a problem, what you're saying this is a problem, what do you do to address it? Yeah, I, I do think it's a problem. Some of the, you know, some of the, the real, the more involved and, and the people who are trying to deal with it's been at the state level where some of the state securities administrators and some of the states have passed laws that limit the use of particularly designations that are targeted at seniors. Right. And uh, in, Which in states, way, off the top of your head, do you know uh, just a, a yeah, few of the states that have done that? Was, Massachusetts was the first to do it. Others have followed their model rules now in right. place. Our friends at the national, the, at NASA, the state security yeah. administrators have, have uh, been working on this. So I think they have taken the lead. Look, we at CFP board seek to compete. I'm not afraid of competing with any of these designations. We're, you know, among the oldest, the most well-known. We continue to promote it the most. And CFP certification is, is respected by regulators, policymakers, firms, uh, CFP professionals, the public at large. We're just going to continue to work hard to promote CFP certification, to continue to set and hold individuals to high standards. Does it concern you at all that all these other designations are out there and people are just putting something on their business card and thinking they don't need the full design, the, the CFP or something like that, because the general public might not be able to make the distinction? Well, look, I, you know, people can do as they choose. You know, as I said, it, it, it almost kind of makes an advisor look like there is a feeling of inadequacy in some ways, right? <laughs> that they have to put so many letters. One phenomenon that I have seen is, you know, there's a desire when somebody first becomes an advisor for credibility. So what can I get quick? You know, what, what, what are the credentials that I can get quick? Because, you know, CFP, we have a three-year experience requirement. So if you're just starting out and not already an advisor and have some experience under your belt, it, it's a long haul to become CFP. Sir. So what can I get quick? One of the things we're seeing, and it, you know, I'm happy to see it candidly, is that you know, some of those new advisors, once they get the CFP, they start dropping some of these more obscure or less meaningful certifications. And, and that's, I think, uh, I think that's a positive. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the industry overall. What are what are some of the things that you're seeing out there? Uh, it's been a, a very interesting past year and a few months at this point. What are some of the things that kind of surprised you and impressed you about the about the financial planning industry over this crazy year we've just been through? Well, if I could offer a friendly amendment to your question. Uh, yes. We would call it the financial planning profession, not an industry, you know. Okay. We might, we speak of the financial services industry, but financial planning, we're really working toward establishing it as a a respected profession like accounting or architecture, law, et cetera. But having said that, let me answer the question. One of the things that we're seeing, our fastest growing market segment is the call center 
financial planner. So think of Schwab's personal advisor services and and mm-hmm. uh, Vanguard and Fidelity. These firms are and some of the old timers. I've heard people say, "Oh, well, that's not real financial planning kind of thing." Look, this is an on ramp to the profession for new people who uh, these these firms are making investments and helping their their advisors become CFP certified. So one of the one of the big trends, obviously, is and they're hiring. I mean, Fidelity came out last month and said they're going to hire what was it three or four thousand advisors over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, so, they're. They're on you know, a binge. Yeah, they're the ones doing the hiring, right? So they, they have a big say. They are, and so I'm I'm grateful that uh, they're t- that they're hiring new new folks. Other trends that we're seeing is, and, and probably no surprise, and I'm sure you're seeing it uh, with uh, among the the people you're writing about, is this move toward holistic advice. So we have all these pressures on. The traditional fee model, you know, the days of charging one percent to manage money and and nothing more, you know, seem to be going away. And some of these new models are putting pressure on fees, and so firms are seeking to demonstrate more value. They're seeking to have deeper, uh, more meaningful, more sticky relationships with mm-hmm. their clients, and you know, they've figured out that the way to do that is to have a more holistic offering of financial advice. Well, guess what? That's what CFP certification is all about. That's what we've always been about. And it's as though in every business model, the firms are coming toward CFP certification. And I think that's, I think that's a positive outcome for the public. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying on the fee issue. It's a it's a much talked about topic, but there's a some serious, I guess, uh, digging in of the heels on the on the asset based pricing. And and I know that a lot of people are, are expanding their services beyond asset management, becoming holistic and so forth. But what are you seeing in terms of fees? Are, are people really moving against asset based fees or are they? are moving away from, I should say, not moving against. And are those fees moving at all? They seem to be some of the, you know, the most resilient fee structures in financial services. Look, I, I, the data that I've seen, you've probably seen it as well, is that it's pretty much holding, right? That mm-hmm. just to your point, it's resilient. And yet firms increasingly, in order to maintain that fee structure, are needing to offer more holistic, more value, if you will. In some ways, the investment management part is becoming almost like a commodity in some ways. You ask about, though, different fee structures. And this is a topic that you know has, has interested the profession for some time. The, the folks like Alan Moore and Michael Kitsis's XY Planning Network uh, I think are doing a great service to young people. You know, in the past, if, if, you know, if you're an advisor and and you an AUM fee model, and your minimum's five hundred thousand or a million dollars, if you don't have any assets, you know, and sometimes young people or recent college grads who are might be the emerging affluent, mm-hmm. they don't have any assets at all, and yet if they've got student loans and they're starting out, their need for Financial planning advice might even be greater than than somebody who has uh, more means, and so I think these alternative fee models, the facet wealth folks, the XY planning network. One of the challenges, and we're working on this. One of the challenges has been, though, that at least in some of the state regulatory environments, you know, they don't quite know how. You know, they know how to regulate commissions and they know how to regulate you know an AUM fee but somebody who's charging $99 a month for a new mm-hmm. college grad to give them advice on budgeting and how to think about you know their life uh, paying off student loans it's hard for them to regulate and so there's been some resistance and so we've been 
working with the folks to uh, help uh, you know we I think it's uh, it's really a, an issue that impacts access to good advice when there are prohibitions. Right. To- well, the the XY planning group is a good example. I think they started off with the best intentions, but it, from what I understand, there a lot of those folks have have kind of migrated toward toward the the ease of asset based pricing. It it just seems like. It's so easy. They like it. Advisors like it because it's an easy case to make. They say, you know, you know, I'm on the same side of the table as you. When your assets go up, I get make I make more, and and vice versa. When assets go down, and it's easy to bill because you don't have to say, hey, you owe me ninety nine bucks for another month of this stuff. It just comes out of the account. But there are so many cases, and the the chorus is getting louder. It's still a minority, but the chorus is getting louder for saying. Why are you basing on your your fees on something that is, you know, quickly becoming almost a commodity? Is it really fair to say how much your account is is much more complex and I need more money from you because you're a, you know, a $10 million account versus somebody that's a million dollar account? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, the likes of Dr. Carolyn McClanahan down in Jacksonville, Florida, or Joe Vitava up in mm-hmm. upstate New York in... Uh, Seneca Financial Advisors, they've gone the the fixed fee retainer model. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, it, but it, it, it does seem, the AUM fee does seem resilient. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. No. Anything that you're seeing on the, on a kind of the regulatory landscape coming up with the new administration and all those things? You know, I, I think that there will be a move to align SEC and DOL regulations. I You know, we're, everybody's watching that. We're interested in that as well. That seems to be the big play, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be watching that. And your readers, I'm sure, will watch it with great interest as well, your listeners. Yeah. Bruce, you got anything for uh, Kevin? I think Kevin's got it covered. Yeah. Anything, any other uh, highlights you want to share with us, Kevin, or maybe uh, make some kind of bold forecast about anything? <laughs> we will we will take any forecast or prediction here at uh, the Investment News Podcast. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, hey, you know, I don't know that, I'm not going to make a prediction, but I will tell you that those of us who work at CFP Board feel very honored. When we survey the CFP community, 90 to 92% tell us that they are either satisfied or very satisfied with their career choice. By the way, that's much higher than advisors who are not CFP certified. And when we ask them how important CFP certification has been to their success, they 78 to 80% say it's either been important or very important. So, you know, every day we get up, we get to work with smart, passionate, articulate people who are making a difference in people's lives. And we couldn't be more honored to, to play that. All right. Well, when you have any breaking news over there, you know, to come to investment news first, Kevin, um, at least I hope you know that. Good luck with uh, your second 15 years there at CFP board. And we appreciate you, you stopping by and, and shedding your, your insights for our audience. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate the opportunity. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. As you know, we launch on Monday. We want to thank our special guest, Kevin Keller, who you just heard from, the CEO of the CFP Board of Standards, and Andrew Comero, founder of Planning Across the Spectrum. Uh, we also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. And of course, if you're listening to the Investment News Podcast, you know to find us at investmentnews.com. You can also go to Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, where you listen to all of your podcasts. Please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach Jeff at, at Benji Ryder on Twitter and me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.